Hi, this is Gordon Russell, host of The Neutral Ground, the New Orleans Advocate's weekly podcast on the stories behind some of the stories that are making waves in South Louisiana this week. Thanks to our sponsors, Gardner Realtors, and thank you for joining us. Hi, uh, today I'll be talking with uh, City Hall reporter Jeff Adelson, who will explain the opening of the Bonnie Carey Spillway, which is expected to happen tomorrow and will relieve uh, the high river somewhat. Um, and next I'll have Nick Riemann and Della Hassell who cover the river parishes for us and they'll be talking about the latest news at the Denka neoprene plant out in St. John Parish. And last, Feynman Roberts will be here to interview me about a story I had recently on the uh, 10 to 2 jury law, which is getting phased out, but is uh, run into an interesting legal challenge. Uh, first up is Jeff Adelson. Jeff, thanks for uh, taking a few minutes today. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, uh, they are planning, the Army Corps of Engineers announced this week that they're going to open the Bonnie Carey Spillway uh, starting tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um First of all, what is the spillway? Uh, so the spillway is the spillway is a path that uh, portions of the river can be diverted to Lake Pontchartrain along. It's uh, blocked off normally by a control structure that's uh, it's a pretty pretty massive structure with three hundred and fifty bays, each of which are uh, blocked off by about twenty wooden, uh, they call them needles. Um, so that normally keeps the river running on its normal course. When the river gets too high, though, uh, and the, uh, the height and the amount of water that, uh, that are coming down is enough to start uh, raising concerns about the river levees in New Orleans, uh, they start opening those bays up uh, to relieve some of the, uh, the water that's that would normally come past New Orleans, redirected again along that uh, that spillway down into the lake. So it gives the river a second outlet, essentially. It, exactly, exactly. It's one of two um, major spillways that uh, that are on the river in South uh, Louisiana. The other is uh, the Morganza, uh, which uh, flows into the Atchafalaya Basin. Uh, that's that is. Uh, um, only used in extreme circumstances, and it's only ever been used twice in, in the history, uh, in its history. And that's up a little ways north of Baton Rouge. <clears throat> that's right, yeah. And so the Bonnie Carey spillway, by contrast, has been used quite a bit, re- especially recently, right? Can you talk a little bit about how much more it's been used in recent years than typically? Sure. The The Bonnie Carey spillway was built uh, originally after the, the 1927 floods uh, and was completed in uh, 1931. So over the you know, almost 90 years of its existence, it's been open about 13, this will be the 13th opening. Um, but one thing that's really important to note is a lot of those openings have been just within the last five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, this is going to be the first time in history that the spillway has been opened uh, twice in two years. Uh, we, it had to be opened last year, uh, actually very early last year, mm-hmm. uh, because of uh, high water levels. Um, and it also had to be opened uh back in 2016. So that's three times in four years, which is really unusual. Uh, normally, uh, you can go um, 
a decade you know, or a more. Decade. It, it, it's it's typically been about a decade between openings. And this is, uh, as we all know here, the Mississippi River drains a good bit of the United States. I forget how uh, many about states. About a third. Yeah. And so this uh, this is due mainly not to rain necessarily around here, although we've been seeing a fair bit of that, but mostly rain up in the Ohio River Valley and maybe in the upper Mississippi Valley, right? Uh, that's correct. That's correct. The, they've had a really uh, rainy uh two months up there. Um, according to the National Weather Service, some areas that would typically have seen five to six inches have actually seen up to 30 inches of rain. Wow. Um, the uh, There's just been uh, a, a tremendous amount of precipitation falling, and all of that is making its way down to us, and that's caused uh, the river levels to rise. Um, they're currently at, at uh, almost 16 feet. Um, 17 feet is what they consider to be flood stage. That doesn't mean anybody down here flood. is actually getting wet. Right. But uh, that's the um, that's the level that they like to keep the river under. Um, uh-huh. And it's about three feet below the top of the levee. So, so 20 feet would actually mean, if it got above 20 feet, that would actually mean water coming over the top. That's of the right. Yeah. 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 And just to be clear about what these measurements mean, that they measure this against the sea basically so we're talking about the river being 17 feet above sea level right it's that's basically the case it's it's technically sea level uh it's technically the mean level of the gulf at the specific time that they set the standard in place but more for for all intents and purposes it's basically sea level okay uh and that that sort of explains why you know given given that uh a lot of the city is you know, near or below sea level. That sort of explains why when you're looking at the river during one of these high water events, it looks like there are boats uh, sort of over your head. It's because they actually are. They're (laughs) higher in elevation than than you are. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing to see one of those tankers go by in the French Quarter or something, and it's 10 feet above your head, the bottom of it, or the the water line. Um, So, uh, and you spoke to a couple of scientists about the increasing frequency of uh, of opening the spillway, and they what what did they say about that? Well, and and this again goes back to the fact that what's happening here in New Orleans is heavily influenced by what's happening in the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi River Valley in terms of rain. Um, They said is, you know, as with most uh, extreme weather events, you can never specifically say that something is caused by climate change. Uh, What what a lot of experts, including uh, high-level climate folks over at uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration say, is that climate change contributes to a warming atmosphere. A warming atmosphere holds more water, which leads to more frequent and more, uh, or water vapor, excuse me, uh, and that leads to more frequent and more extreme storms. So what what they say is, you know, going forward, as we continue to see the effects of climate change, there's going to be uh, more rainfall. That's going to likely mean higher levels in the Mississippi, more frequent openings of the spillway. And, you know, this is something that's not going to sort of just go away and Mm -hmm. and likely is not just sort of a coincidental could be sort of a yearly feature yeah and this year they're saying they're not predicting this but they're saying you could even see a second opening this year if you know if there's because of snow melt and things like that later in the season yes at this point no one no one's predicting that um 
There is, um, you know, it, it is worth noting though that there's been a lot of a, a lot of that precipitation up north. Uh, it was in the form of snow. They've had some uh, really cold. They've had a really cold winter, a really snowy winter, um, and we are uh, not going to really get the snow melt until late March or early April, which is about when they were they're, they're expecting at this point to close the spillway again. Now, if we get a snow melt and that's combined with more heavy storms, that could be enough to uh, get the water levels back up above 17. And, um, you know, it, it would theoretically be possible that uh, the spillway could have to be reopened again. And the Corps says they're, they're ready for that possibility if it, if it comes about. All right. Well, um we will be watching as they open the first bays tomorrow. It's a really cool thing to watch if you all have never seen it. Um, hopefully we'll have some video up on our website. And uh, thank you, Jeff, for uh, stopping by to explain how it all works. Thank you. All right. Joining me now are reporters Nick Riemann and Della Hassell, who cover the River Parishes for us. Uh, thanks for taking a minute to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Nick, you had an interesting story recently about a meeting out in St. John Parish uh, over the, the latest kind of wrinkle in the uh, Denka performance elastomer plant, which has been very controversial for the amount of chloroprene that it emits into the atmosphere. And the EPA has said it's uh, hundreds of times higher than what's acceptable. So last week, uh, you were at a meeting where an EPA official talked about what they plan to do about it. Right. What, did, what did he say? Well... He kind of said something that the crowd really didn't want to hear, which was that the EPA probably can't do that much going forward, just because this is an issue where it's largely state regulated. So the EPA set this threshold of 0 0.2 uh, micrograms of cubic meter of air that you can have a safe concentration of chloroprene. Um, and as you said, the numbers have been much higher than that um, in the past few years. But you know, it's the state that's kind of in charge of this. And a few years ago, they made an agreement with Denka um, that Denka would install, they would retrofit this plant with this um, regenerative thermal oxidizer, um, and they would reduce emissions by 85%, which they've managed to do. Um, the problem is that the 85% still It's not going them. to hit the 0 0.2. Uh -huh. um, so people were talking, they were hoping that the federal government would step in and, you know, try to force the plant to actually reduce emissions to hit that number. Um, but the EPA representative there basically said that's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, just from the federal standpoint, the only place in the U.S. that produces chloroprene or uses chloroprene in production is this Danka plant mm -hmm. um, in Laplace. So it's not a national issue. It's not something that's going to be a priority for the EPA. It would also require years of effort and then congressional approval to get on this air toxics list of substances that they can actually regulate, which doesn't seem like something they're going to do. And just to be clear, so now where we are is that this this chemical has been classified as a likely carcinogen. Likely which, carcinogen. And is that why the EPA uh, doesn't have a specific permissible threshold? Is that why they have sort of this guidance as opposed to an actual enforceable threshold? Well, no, I mean, they could actually call it a carcinogen mm -hmm. and they would still have to go through the same a process difficult for, process to, to enforce. I see. It, right. I mean, it's a process that they need to go through to determine what a safe level is or is it that they, in other words, it, are, is the 
point is a zero point two threshold kind of a preliminary finding, or is it? Well, yeah, that's that's something that's interesting that I heard from this meeting that I haven't really heard in a lot of you know my past reporting here um, was the the guy that came from the EPA said maybe in the future it'll be zero point one or zero point three. You know, we're still working on getting to what that final number would be. They would need to put more research into it to you know, definitively say something um, before going forward with any sort of further regulation. Okay. Adela, you guys have written about other efforts to kind of bring this uh, bring this plant to heal or to, to reduce, uh, to, to hold them accountable for what's happening there. What Where do those stand? Sure. So um, the biggest thing I can think of is there's just this series of lawsuits that are moving their way through state and federal courts right now. And the lawsuits are aiming to do different things, or they're aiming to do the same thing in different ways, <clears throat> which is to get the plant to reduce shut down its, or move out or reduce its emissions. Reduce them below the point zero point two threshold, which they're really not very close to at this point. Even not even well, even though they have reduced their emissions. They're getting they're getting a lot better. Uh-huh. Um so when we talked earlier about hundreds of times, uh-huh. and that not they're not really at that level anymore. I, I know there's one location, uh, they have six monitoring stations. There's one that's getting close, but I mean, since the plant has already put in this technology and it's been a year since since it went online, there's no reason to think it'll drop anymore. I see. So it can still be many times at 0.2 threshold, but it's not the extreme numbers we've seen before, just still above the EPA's guideline though. So these plaintiffs in the lawsuits, there's four thousand plaintiffs, roughly. Is it? Yeah, there's for the moment. Yeah, for the moment. There's there's thousands of plaintiffs, and um, <clears throat> there's so there's a group of lawsuits, and they're seeking the plaintiffs in that are seeking damages. And the lawyer told us that the goal of those lawsuits was to grab Dinka by the wallet, right, and sort of um, show them that it's more expensive to ignore. The plaintiff's requests than it would be to reduce chloroprene emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one tactic. There's also another lawsuit in federal court, and that lawsuit is actually just an injunction. It's they're just asking a judge to force the plant to either limit production until it, you know, the air pollution reaches mm-hmm. below that 0.2 number, or if the plant is unable to do that, force the plant to shut down. Because the only way at this point to make the plant emit less would be to just sort of tamp down production because they've already installed all the, for now, they've installed all the cleaning equipment that they... They've installed this equipment. It's There's debate over how effective the equipment is. It depends on who you ask. And there's also a uh, Clean Air Act report that's pending. Um, there was a preliminary report that found that the company might be in violation <clears throat> of some parts of the Clean Air Act for having, basically for having leaky valves, uh-huh. okay. <laughs> essentially. That's that's what it boils down to, is having a bunch of leaky pipes and leaky valves and allowing chloroprene to sort of just leak out in places it's not supposed to. So they could try to fix that, presumably, mm-hmm. and lower emissions if they haven't done so already. Okay. So other than that, where we sort of stand at this point, uh, the latest from everybody, the LDEQ has sort of said they're not, they don't see this as a huge concern. They don't think people in the community need to be worried. Um, and the EPA has said they're not going to enforce this standard. So we have the lawsuits going forward. We have any, anything else on the horizon? 
uh, I think just a lot of tension between the community and the plan. I mean, I don't think that part's going to change yeah. for a long time. I think you're going to have some very angry residents out there. And uh, I guess we just have to watch and see. <laughs> and you saw a lot of that at the meeting. Yeah. And, and what I will say about that is with that response from residents, you know, the, the, that they were so upset um, with what the EPA said, there was actually one of the attorneys there um, after the EPA said, the government's probably not going to do anything. The attorney kind of said, well, that's that's our job with these lawsuits. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the best available science that we know of. We should be making them, you know, keep everybody safe, you know. So the lawyers are saying they're stepping in or the regulators won't, essentially. Essentially, yes. Okay. All right. Well, uh, thank you, too, for uh, taking a few minutes to uh, help us understand this. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. All right. All right. We're back. Uh, This is obviously not Gordon Russell. My name is Feynman Roberts. I'm one of the reporters here at The Advocate sitting in for Gordon on this interview because it's Gordon that we're going to interview <laughs> here for this. Uh, Gordon has been one of the lead editors on The Advocate's uh, non-unanimous jury series um, that ran last year and uh, recently just won a Polk Award. So congratulations for that, Gordon. Thank you, Feynman. Uh, and when, it, when voters in the state voted last November to amend the constitution of the state of Louisiana to make non-unanimous juries. Previously, uh, defendants could be convicted on 10 to 2 verdicts in the state. When they voted, it may seem like that put the unanimous jury question to rest in Louisiana. But it really didn't, Gordon. What what exactly did that vote do? Well, so it's a prospective law, which means it takes, it, it didn't affect, uh, it only applies to cases involving crimes that were committed on or after January 1st of this year. Which means, and with the delays in the court system that are just sort of, you know, baked into the court system, that means there's about a perhaps two-year pipeline, roughly, of cases where people will still be tried under the old rules because their crimes were committed before that date. So we have this kind of limbo period where we've approved the new law, but we're not really we're not really going to follow it initially. I mean, we're following it, but we're not going right. to we're not going to change the practice immediately unless there's a case that happens to speed from crime to trial really quickly. We're probably not going to see the unanimous jury scheme actually in place for a little while. Right. So there are presumably hundreds and maybe thousands of defendants around the state whose crimes were committed as recently as December, right. who may be tried and still convicted by non-unanimous juries, which the state's voters and the legislature have said they right. don't want. Right. In fact, there are people who committed crimes after we voted to change the law that right. will still be tried under the old law, just the way that the law happened to be written. So, yeah, that's it's sort of a weird little irony tucked away in this thing. Yeah. The, you know, the wheels of justice spin slow, I guess. <laughs> So, but all that has been thrown into at least somewhat question by, or some question rather, by what's going on in Sabine Parish. And for those who don't know, Sabine Parish is a small rural parish in northwest Louisiana. Manny is the parish seat there. So, and you guys have reported on this a good bit. So what's going on in Sabine Parish? So this is, it's a little, see if you can follow me through this, but so a a month before the vote where we changed the law in Louisiana, this judge in Sabine Parish, uh, he, uh, in a ruling, in, a, in an appeal of a case there, a murder trial, he ruled that the law was actually unconstitutional, the old law, the one that we did not, had not changed. Right. The non-unanimous jury scheme was, was he, he ruled that it was unconstitutional pursuant to the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that ruling, sort of surprisingly, has just sat there. Uh, we all thought it would be appealed. 
Um, but it was not partly because the district attorney there and the defense lawyer who, who filed this appeal, they ended up coming to a plea deal on the particular case that this involved. It was a guy named Melvin Maxey who was accused of murder. And right. He had been convicted of murder in an 11 to 1 uh, jury vote. In a split the, jury. Right. And the one juror who voted against the verdict was black. He was the only black juror. And so the appeal sort of looked into the racially discriminatory aspects of this law. And uh, there was an evidentiary hearing at which the defense lawyer uh, brought in a lot of evidence uh, about the history of this law and how it was born in the Jim Crow era. And then he also interviewed our reporter, John Zimmerman, who talked about a lot of the advocates research into the law and its continuing discriminatory effect. So yeah, let me see if we can if we can sort of sum that up. There was a man in Sabine Parish named Melvin Maxey who was convicted of murder. Yes. In twenty eighteen. Uh it may have been earlier than that. This well the, the appeal was in twenty eighteen. Right. And his attorney, perhaps spurred by the publicity around the non unanimous jury verdict, filed an appeal arguing that his constitutional rights now he argued on the basis of the US Constitution, correct, correct? not the state constitution filed an appeal, and the judge held a hearing and ended up agreeing with the defense Yeah, but the and issued a ruling on that. But the ruling was somewhat mooted by the fact that in the interim, the defense, Melvin Maxey, this guy, had agreed to plead guilty to manslaughter. Correct. And, and so, take a 40-year sentence instead of a life sentence. And then it's secondly mooted by the fact that the voters changed the law. Right. However, that still could potentially impact all these cases that are in this uh, in between phase. Now, the judge, I should say, he specified in ruling this law unconstitutionally, specified that his ruling was not meant to apply retroactive. However, mm-hmm. if his if another court agreed that the law was actually unconstitutional, I think it's possible that, that you would certainly see lawyers trying to have it apply right. retroactively, because if it was unconstitutional last year, well, why wasn't it unconstitutional 10 years ago? Or in 1978, for that reason, right, or, or right. whatever. Okay, great. And so that ruling was issued, but it seemed like kind of a a non-issue after the voters changed the rule until what happened recently. Well, so as I said, we were surprised that there was no appeal, but there wasn't. And so this sort of just sitting there, this ruling that's unchallenged. And then recently, the Sabine Parish District Attorney, who happens to be one of the strongest critics of the new law, mm-hmm. he, he filed a motion in another case, a case named, the defendant's name is Valentino Hodge, accused of domestic violence. And he files a motion with the same judge. There's only one judge in Sabine Parish. He files a motion and says, Hey judge, uh, we're going to, we're entitled to a 10 out of 12 verdict in this case, correct? So, and the I judge sh- says no. I suppose the question is, oh, I see. He filed the motion because he knew the judge had already ruled that that was unconstitutional. Correct. But he says this is still the law in Louisiana. And so he says, you know, aren't we entitled to a 10 out of 12 verdict? And the judge says, well, no, you remember I just ruled in that other case and nobody's challenged my ruling. Right. So as far as I'm concerned, in Sabine Parish, the law is 12 out of 12 are needed. So in this case, the district attorney, because this case has not been resolved, he decides to appeal to the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, which is where appeals automatically go if the law is deemed unconstitutional. Right. So now, uh, despite the fact that voters have clearly expressed their will, the legislature has expressed its will, uh, and this ruling seemed like it wasn't going to go anywhere, now the Supreme Court is tasked, Louisiana State Supreme Court is tasked with really considering a decision that could have a, I wouldn't even call it a ripple effect, a tidal wave effect through pending cases and 
past convictions. Potentially, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, and I gotta think the odds are that they do not um, agree with the judge and say being parish and that they say we've already ruled on this and it is constitutional, but it'll be interesting. And if they agreed with the judge, you know, there's first the question, then it would sort of immediately apply to all pending cases. But I do think it would open a potential Pandora's box, which could be quite a mess. You know, I mean, you know, uh, notwithstanding whether this is fair or not, like having to retry cases from 1978, as you said, where, you know, a case that was an 11 to 1 verdict 30 years ago would be pretty difficult for district attorneys and i think you, that would create a real mess it would it, it would it seems like it would yeah it would just be sort of a, a disaster as it were at least in the court system definitely throw it into chaos so what what happens next this case has gone to the louisiana state supreme court what are we looking for next so i think we're looking for a ruling i'm actually not sure if there's going to be briefings but i mean i think basically the the judge issued this 52 page very detailed uh ruling in this case and i think the supreme court We'll look at that. And I think one question I have is whether they're going to give it a serious look because he gave a lot of reasons and it was a very detailed opinion in this case. They could just say, we've already, this question has been asked and answered. Forget it. It's constitutional. Or they could really sort of kick the tires on this thing, which I think would be interesting because I think he raised a lot of um, interesting points in his finding this law unconstitutional. Well, you and I were just talking about that a few minutes ago. I mean, what what did the judge say after 120 years of split verdicts in this state? And here you have a judge in a rural northwestern Louisiana parish, which is perhaps the most unexpected place from such a, uh, such a ruling could come from. What did the judge say made the law unconstitutional? So the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has laid out a test for these kinds of things, as they do in a lot of things, and and what. They have to show that the law was had a had a discriminatory intent, and that it continues to exert a discriminatory impact. And so that was essentially the finding. And even though there's been a lot of the law has evolved over time, it was pretty clear from the testimony taken. There was historians that testified. It was pretty clear that the law had a racist intent. And then the advocates' research and some of that showed that it continued to exert a discriminatory impact, even if the sort of racism, the blatant racism, has kind of been scrubbed out of the law. And it was changed along the way from allowing nine to three verdicts to 10 to two verdicts. But anyway, that was essentially the finding. Yeah. So in other words, he said, even though maybe the people who are proponents of this are no longer saying to preserve the supremacy of the white race, correct? it is still having a disproportionate impact on black defense. Intentional or not, the evidence shows that it is, correct. Right, great. Well, Gordon, I know we can trust you to stay abreast of this story and uh, and keep us informed on it. And uh, thanks for sitting down with me on your own podcast. <laughs> thanks for sitting in for me. <laughs> no problem. The Neutral Ground is brought to you by Gardner Realtors with music provided by David Bodie. We welcome your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Email me at grussell, with two S's and two L's, at theadvocate.com, or call me at 504-636-7437. Hope to see you next week.